0: The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified faithful men for the gospel ministry and for the recovery of biblical reformation in our day. It's our joy to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. We appreciate the support of our listeners. To learn more about how you can help us accomplish our mission, visit manofgodnetwork.com. God Network, a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. You have tuned in to The Narrated Puritan, www.puritanaudiobooks.com. A reading from the discussions of Robert Louis Dabney, Volume 1, The Bible, Its Own Witness, and many more believed because of its own word, and said unto the woman, now we believe not because of your saying, for we have heard of ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. John 4, verses 41 and 42. To him who reflects, the claim with which the gospel presents itself must appear exceedingly remarkable. Wherever it comes, it demands immediate belief. It's the first duty, and on pain of damnation. And while it does not pause an instant to consider the knowledge of him whom it addresses concerning the literary evidences of its authenticity, or his opportunity for informing himself, to the unlettered laborer, as to the laborious antiquary, she says alike, Believe, and thou shalt be saved, and he that believes not shall be damned. On the other hand, the gospel demands an intelligent and rational faith. It contemns and sternly rejects a pretended assent of ignorance, prejudice, and subserviency, requiring us to be able to give a reason for the hope that is in us. What is the explanation of this high and exacting attitude? What is that common ground of rational evidence accessible to every reader and hearer upon which this claim can justly rest? The solution of the mock and infidel is prompt and simple. The faith of the unlearned Christian, he decides, is nothing but ignorant prejudice, blind imitation, or prescription. What right, he asks, has such a man to an opinion here? What does he know of the extended and intricate discussions concerning the composition of the canon of Scripture? The history of these documents called Inspired, the historical evidence of their genuineness, or the correct state of their text. He does not even know one sentence of the dead languages in which they are composed. His pretended faith is, then, but the accident of his birth and rearing, and is as worthless as that of the Moslem, who believes in Allah, and Muhammad only because he happened to be born in Arabia, or of the pagan who worships imaginary gods only because his stupid mind has been drugged from infancy from fables of polytheism the papist also assails a protestant's rule of faith which is the bible alone received unrational evidence with almost the same cavils and this is but one instance of several in which romans found leagued with the infidel enemies of christ the protestant rule of faith says a popish controversialist is absurd and impossible. Protestantism professes to scout an implicit faith as unworthy of a rational being. But how shall the convicted soul of the trembling sinner, who is most probably unfurnished with letters, and prevented by the exactions of secular labor from investigation, for such are most of mankind, who is perhaps in addition urged by approaching death, and harassed with sickness, Perform that extensive work of inquiry necessary to an intelligent exercise of private judgment? Can he master these learned discussions? Can he become such an adept in the languages of Scripture as to verify by his own comparison the correctness of the translation which his minister has placed in his hand? Has he time to thread the thorny mazes of the expositors and ascertain the orthodox interpretation of its language? But unless he has done all this, he has no right to assert a belief in the exercise of his private judgment. His faith after all boasts of intelligence and pretended scorn of the implicit belief of the docile son of the church, is but blind prescription, for this learned process is plainly impracticable for the bulk of mankind. The only difference is that while the unlearned Romanists trust implicitly to the authority of a holy infallible church, the unlearned Protestant is led blindfolded by his heretical parson. Such is, in substance, the charge of the Papist. But we reply unanswerably that from the very nature of the human mind, belief cannot possibly arise without evidence any more than bodily vision can take place without light. This humble and teachable son of Rome must, then, have adequate knowledge that she is the true Church, holy and infallible. That Christ has made her sovereign declaration the rule of faith to his soul, and promised salvation to him who adopts it. That some one system amidst the different ones promulgated in the course of ages by different popes and councils is a true creed of the church. That this is consistent with the teachings of the apostles, from whom the popes claim succession. Is there not here a field of inquiry at least as extensive and thorny as that which he has imagined for the Protestant? But unless it is investigated, the papist has no right to hold his rule of faith, for belief without evidence is a mockery. And what means have common men to ascertain the testimony of the church, save the instructions of their several priests? What means have they to verify the teachings of their spiritual guides by comparing them for themselves with the voluminous and contradictory folios of the Roman doctors? Manifestly, then, this boasted, popish rule of faith comes practically to this, that to the individual layman, his individual priest, is his rule of faith. His gospel and his priest is uninspired. He works no miracle or sign to guarantee his lofty claim. He is perhaps not recognized in other respects as even a man of personal integrity or sanctity. Thus terribly may their cavil be retorted. These instances show us, my brethren, the direction in which lies the answer to the question with which we set out. Since Christ demands of us an intelligent faith, and that irrespective of our possession or lack of literary culture, it appears plain that he regards his gospel as containing its own self-evidencing light drawn by the learned from antiquity have their value. But wherever the Bible is read with honesty, it presents within itself sufficient proof to evince that its claims are reasonable. Only on this supposition can its lofty and imperative attitude be justified. The text presents us an apt instance of the species of internal evidence. A Redeemer had come, an utter stranger to the well of Sychar, and had preached his gospel to the Samaritans whom he met there they were unworthy members of a hostile sect they knew nothing of jesus of nazareth had made no effort as they had no means to verify his antecedents or test his credentials as a messiah whom they in common with the jews expected but yet reason showed them evidence enough of his claim in the manner of his discourse itself they did not now need the preliminary inquiry Common sense told them that a being who could depict a past life without any human means of learning it, and read a sinful heart, and teach such truths of grace and holiness and power, must be closed with a divine sanction. With well-rounded conviction, the woman exclaimed, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And many more believe because of his own word. And said unto the woman, Now we believe not because of your saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The truth which I desire to teach you from these words, my brethren, is this, that the contents of a message may be such as to demonstrate its authenticity without external inquiry touching the messenger. The messages delivered by the ambassador may themselves constitute a sufficient credentials. So the gospel brings its own self-evidencing light. That I may meet all such cavils as those of the infidel and papists in the most thorough and candid way, I shall suppose a plain unlettered inquirer, with no book save his English Bible, and with no means or leisure for investigation, other than such as are demanded of every man by the supreme importance of the subject honestly pondering the demand which he sees God there making upon his immediate and intelligent faith. I shall not indeed paint the Christian faith as the easy acquisition of folly and prejudice, or of an indolent and perfunctory glance at divine truth. For truth, so grand and sacred, is also the gospel that will appear when demonstrated to the reason to deserve and require the most laborious and impartial efforts of our faculties. But I shall suppose a case involving no other learning or wisdom than that of the simple English reader weighing the contents of his English Bible with such diligence and impartiality as the worth of an immortal soul deserves. He has been told that the English which he reads is not the tongue in which the inspired men wrote, He is aware that the words before him profess to be a translation of the actual words of inspiration, carefully made by capable and honest but fallible men, but he is unable to verify its fidelity for himself. The chief external proof of that point within the reach of his mind is but this, that he observes this English Bible possesses the confidence of all the honest, the pure, the wise, and the learned within his acquaintance. Now, Let us suppose this unleaded inquirer setting himself from this posture to study this book and to decide whether it contains within itself sufficiently obvious marks of divine origin. We shall find that the only difficulty of our task is the universal diffusion of the light of evidence over the whole field of sacred scripture. Our appreciation of its elements is the less easy because of the very fact that, as Bible readers, Our minds have been immersed in and surrounded by it from youth. My effort to analyze it before you and define its parts is beset with a difficulty like that of the physicist, who should endeavor to separate a beam of sunlight into its prismatic colors in an open field bathed with the radiance of noonday. Were he and his spectator shut up in a darkened hall to which only one pencil of sunlight was permitted to enter, the exhibition of a theorem would be easy. But amidst the glare of midday the very profusion of the light would serve to obscure his result so in my proof my difficulty in causing you to see the analysis of the evidence arises only from the breath and universal diffusion of the light number one the manifest excellence and truth of the contents and proposed end of revelation commend it to our minds the most immediate and universal result of human reflection is the conviction of a god supreme first cause, uncreated creator of all other things. The admission of this foundation truth may be regarded as the first and loudest requirement of our reason. Well, the Bible is in perfect harmony with this requirement, in that it does not begin by setting about the demonstration of the being of God, but assumes it as a first truth, needing no inspired assertion. But then, while this book nobly confirms all that a correct reason could surmise of his eternal power and Godhead, it proceeds to reveal to us a circle of perfect and infinite attributes, not only of omnipresence, power, and omniscience, by which he appears competent to his whole grand work and supremacy, but of truth, righteousness, goodness, and holiness by which he is necessarily intuitively seen to be worthy of adoring approval and delightful moral acquiescence. Here is a perfect object, concerning which right reason cannot but say that it is precisely thus God ought to exist. A full approbation of his excellence and glory can only be withheld at the cost of outraging our own undertakings and violating our own consciences. Does this book paint him with clouds and darkness round about him, yet justice and judgment are the habitation of his throne? Nor does our reason utter any clear dictate than this, that since the finite cannot comprehend the infinite, he would not be truly God in whom there was to us no mystery. Next, the most profound and intimate conclusion to which our reason impels us from our belief in the being of God is his providence which we recognize as a silent but supreme superintendence, impressing an order which is both wise and righteous upon all creatures and all their actions. But now we find that this truth is a very keynote of the system of this book. It proposes itself to us as nothing more than a history of this providence, which it perpetually asserts and explains. When we look into its teachings, we see there familiarly asserted the very truth, as to God's ways and will which furnish us with the explanation of that course of nature, with its profoundest laws, which we observe around us. Providence in this book set forth precisely the same system of things. Yea more, the least learned of the penmen of these scriptures habitually announce as their familiar maxims, those principles of the divine rule which are the conclusions of our widest experience, the inevitable tie between character and destiny, the dependence of posterity on the virtues of their fathers, the superintendence of a secret but almighty will over the volitions of free agents. How strong the proof here that the book is from the same God, whose control we obviously see and feel in our daily lives. When we proceed from the description it gives of God's nature and ways to his law, we find every precept worthy of its rectitude, Whereas we know that all men are sinners, we read in this book a code of duties absolutely without taint of sin, which condemns by its spirituality every man under heaven, and yet commands by its miraculous purity the approval of everyone whom it condemns. We find a multitude of points in this code which corrupt man could never have invented, and yet, when taught us here, they all appear evidently worthy of God and just and wholesome for man. Especially when we read the Decalogue do we find what no human virtue or genius could have constructed, and least of all the wisdom of an age and a race formed under the debasing influences of Egyptian polytheism, a digest of all human duties towards God and man, into ten propositions, so wondrously simple and comprehensive that nothing is omitted and nothing confused. The understanding of a moral creature is inevitably impelled to conclude that if the precepts of the Bible did not come from God, they are certainly worthy of that origin and could be reasonably accounted for by no other, for else this code of perfect holiness must be accounted the offspring of the very sin it condemns. The marvelous consistency of these books among themselves is enough to show that they all came from one source, and that divine. They profess to have been written by different men, It intervals during more than a thousand years, and the internal evidence has abundance to show that this is, in the main, true. These authors were of different languages, characters, and culture. Legislators, warriors, scholars, kings, priests, herdsmen, peasants, mechanics, fishermen, and yet there is such a perfect agreement, and that upon subjects the most profound and mysterious, that the fiercest criticisms of eager enemies have to this day been unable to convict him of any substantial discrepancy. Must they not have been all taught by one infallible mind? But especially when we listen to the Bible delineation of our own moral state. Do we find in our own sorrowful and guilty consciousness an echo which confesses the perfect justice and fidelity of the description? This wonderful book does what no other, not the most ancient, history or tradition, attempts. It gives the explanation of that insoluble mystery, how a ruined and polluted creature could be found amidst the handiwork of a creator whom we must believe to be at once omnipotent, benevolent, and holy. It solves the problem by telling us that God did create man upright and he sought out many inventions, that after man proceeded from his maker's hand, holy and happy, he fell and was ruined by the sin of his first father. But this is not the chief fact. I point to those clear and decisive statements which sacred scripture makes of the most profound and melancholy revelations of our inner consciousness of the emptiness and vanity which our experience so bitterly realizes in all those terrene subjects to the pursuit of which we are all, nevertheless, obstinately impelled by a perverted heart of the ineradicable spring of sinful desire within, of a will freely and yet certainly directed against the dicta of our better conscience, by which we all are ever prompted to choose that evil which we are ever compelled to reprobate of a certain fearful looking for of judgment, which causes us to recoil from that immortality which should be our glory and joy, and of a sorrowful longing without hope for moral renovation, which yet man is ever too weak and sinful to effectuate. Now I ask, by what wisdom is it that this book has revealed an insight so much deeper, more honest and more searching than any human philosophy, into the abyss of our miserable consciousness, when man's guilty soul avouches its truth in every groan of his remorse and his anguish, does it not appear obviously the utterance of him whose eyes behold, whose eyelids try the hearts of the children of men? What artificer of imposture has ever been wont to deal thus with the victims who he would be fool? But among all the contents of this book, it is its professed chief end which commends itself to the reason with a most commanding force. For the most cursory reading of this book shows us that its burden everywhere, its one great perpetual announcement, its good news, is a proposal of a work, which if practicable, cannot but challenge the approval of every right mind, with a self-evidencing light as clear as our consciousness of our own existence. A work the depreciation of whose excellence would betray at once a disregard of self monstrous and suicidal, and a satanic malignity towards our fellows; a work whose mere proposal should be so full of blessing and glory that the refutation or surrender of the hope should be resisted by man's soul with the agony of despair. This proposed work is that which no other reformer or philanthropist ever presumed to suggest one which the ceaseless yearning of our misery even had not emboldened us to ask this proposal is no less than the offer of redemption to man for the glory of god a complete deliverance from guilt by justification and from corruption by sanctification how unique how satisfying to man's necessities how worthy of heaven is his glorious end It is not like the vain, wicked, and impious dreams of philosophy, or polytheism, or Islam. The proposal to find the elements of restoration where, from the nature of the case, it is impossible they can exist in the nature itself that is ruined, or to set aside the obvious doom of man's ill desert, leaving God's justice and holiness outraged, Or to endow a corrupt soul with an immortal blessedness which is incompatible with its sinfulness. No, this gospel offer goes to the foundation of the needed work. It proposes to engage the omnipotence, love, and wisdom of God Himself, both to satisfy divine justice and to restore man's ruin and sin, so that the deliverance shall meet fully every demand of offended heaven and every necessity of fallen humanity. And endow us with a new blessedness as righteous as it is precious, and as everlasting as it is righteous. Must not every right soul exclaim, Oh, if this news may but be true, never can there descend from the skies a word so dear to man, so worthy of God? At its announcement, must not every most pious and reverent aspiration for his honor concur with every holy and legitimate longing of the hungry soul for its own good? In every impulse of benevolence for others, in the ardent wish that the reason may find full authority and evidence. The glad news is true, and why should the most jealous caution resist that joyful conclusion? Methinks there is abundant confirmation in the message itself, a message too grand and strange to be the fiction of man's folly, too pure and noble and righteous and benevolent to be the invention of a malignant impostor. If one were sick and full of anguish with a mortal disease, and an entire stranger were to come to him and profess a purpose of kindly healing, every man must say that the proposal is every way right and good. To test the character of the stranger, it would only remain to see whether his secret intention and his ability corresponded with his profession. So let us now consider that Redeemer whom this book proposes to us as a physician of our soul's malady. Time forbids my staying to argue the constitution of his person as God and man, and thus able for his undertaking, or to unfold the perfect adaptation of the offices he assumes to bear as our prophet, priest, and king to our necessities, or to dwell upon his miracles and predictions as divine sanctions of his claims. Moreover, I promise that I would not go outside of those materials of proof which a plain reader can find in his English Bible. All that I claim on the above points is that the reader's common sense must approve the fitness of the character and function which Jesus Christ seems to assume for the redeeming work which he proposes to undertake. If there can be a real salvation for sinners, it must be by atonement and new birth, and these must be wrought by one who has more than human power to renew us, and more than human independence and worth to pay his life for a world of sinners. Now, such do we find Christ's claims in this book. He is here said to be both son of man and son of God in one person, to have authority to lay down his life and take it again, to have given his life for the sins of the world, and to exercise the divine power in baptizing the hearts of sinners with the Holy Ghost. The question is, are these wondrous claims true? I offer you in proof the lovely and perfect character of Jesus as painted by the evangelists. We read these four histories when you find there described a being who, from his cradle to his cross, was never guilty of a fault, or even a foible. He is represented to us as having displayed every virtue of the perfect man, along with the majesty and might of deity. His love and beneficence were only equaled by his truth and rectitude his only occupation on earth was doing good. His only ambition was to bear away, or at least to lighten the sorrows of others. To the claims of selfishness, avarice, ambition, he displayed a lofty insensibility, such as no human character has ever approached, yea, such as the imagination a man had never dreamed of imputing to its most glowing creations. With boundless power at his command, he was never once seen to employ it to gratify or angrandize or avenge himself. It was used only to bless others, while he remained so poor that he had not where to lay his head. When he opened his mouth, it was to speak as never man spake. His discourses breathed only purity, wisdom, and love. Heaven and earth alike pronounced his character wholly harmless and undefiled, yet most malice could bring no taint upon it by the foulest arts of bribery. The pagan procurator who condemned him testified that no fault could be found in him. The very traitor who betrayed him was constrained to declare him innocent, as he went lashed by the furies of remorse to his own place. His sanctity was tested by the fiery furnace of slander, persecution, and murder, yet there was no alloy. Equally meek, and magnificent, with a spirit as inflexible in its moral courage, as divine in its forgiveness. He only shone with a pure radiance in the furnace. But why do I attempt to describe that which is indescribable? The moral beauty of this character so reveals itself to the intuitions of the humblest mind as well as to the most cultivated, that your own conceptions of it perpetually transcends in glory all the images of rhetoric. May thank God that it is so, and that a complete portraiture is as needless as it is impossible. For in this, the value of this character, that it requires no training, nor logic, nor effort for its apprehension, it commends itself as immediately to the heart of the child or peasant, as of the wise or learned. Now is this picture authentic? Did this man, Jesus, truly speak these words and live this life and died this death in Judea? Then what he said I must believe to be true. True by the evidence of the spotless integrity, love and faithfulness. True by all the irresistible beauty of his character. To tell me that such virtues as his could be the inventor of a lie and that a lie so base, so unfeeling, so impious as this would have been Outrages both my reason and my heart. As though one should tell me that night, with her blackness of darkness, was apparent of delight, and death. The author of life? What would you have said to me if I, in my youth, after witnessing from my infancy the steady, consistent integrity of my honored father, and after owing the happiness of so many years to his faithfulness and love, had refused credit to his word on the pretext that I had no knowledge of the thing he spake? you would have decided with disgust that I showed the head of a fool, and that I could not be blind to the evidence of such consistency in the heart of a scoundrel, and that I refused the instinctive homage of my confidence to such excellence. Even so, if you now saw such a being as Jesus has described, performing his ministry of love and sanctity under your observation, you would be compelled to yield credit to his word. When I contemplate the personal character of Jesus Christ, I feel that I can trust everything to his veracity. But the objection may be imagined that this life and character are not under the inspection of this plain reader of the English Bible as a present reality. All that he knows is that this book in his hands, which professes to be a correct translation of certain histories, said to be eighteen centuries old, describes such a life and character. I reply, This is enough, for there is a wondrous description. The question whence it came must be answered. Only two answers are possible. Either it is a fiction, or it is not. Will anyone dare to say the former? Then he must hold that a company of liars have composed the noblest and most beautiful model of truth ever seen among men, that the loveliest image of virtue which has ever entranced the admiration of the wise and good is the invention of the most loathsome vice. For how foul and cruel and profane must have been the temper which could deliberately set itself to forge such a cheat in mockery at once of God's majesty and mercy, and of man's woes and dangers, that as an exploit of genius which a noblest intellect and heart of scholar has never equalled, and which the most profound critics declare to be an inimitable achievement, should have been accomplished by men who were ignorant at once and base and that these hateful impostors expended all this miraculous art in constructing an imaginary picture of which the only apparent result is to condemn their own falsehood in inventing it, this is indeed not only a greater miracle than the miracles of the gospel, but an impossibility. He who can believe this is more credulous than the most insolent skeptic has represented the homo-Christian. Here, then, is the result of these converging lines of evidence. That while all else in the Bible is manifestly worthy of God, so far it is comprehended, this great proposal of the Bible, that man shall be restored to obedience, holiness, and happiness, is so self-evidently right and good that to reject it is at once a crime and a folly. And that the Redeemer sent to do the glorious work presents a character so consistent with his proposed mission that reason and virtue both imperatively demand for him our full confidence.